0: Is uh, Christian Moscoso, and uh, I'm one of the pastor elders here at Trinity, and it is my joy to bring the word of the Lord today. Uh, as you saw from Richard's announcement, uh, Tim and Kim are actually on vacation right now, and they—you saw them enjoying the cliffs of Dover in that one picture—and uh, we miss them dearly, but we're happy that they're getting to spend some time away with one another, and so. Yeah, you can keep praying for them, as uh, Richard said. Also, I want to say it again, happy Father's Day for those of you who have the privilege of being a father. Uh, there is There are few joys greater than uh, the joy of being a dad. And so, hope you guys have a wonderful, uh, happy Father's Day. <clears throat> and also, happy birthday, Uh Tyler, uh, you know, I'm sure he loves this. So make sure you say happy birthday uh, later. Also, if it's your birthday, and I don't know, I do apologize. Happy birthday to you, too. Wouldn't want to be rude. <laughs> Anyways, uh, as you may remember, the last couple of weeks, we took a, a short little break from our First Samuel series. We did what we call our summer psalms, and we looked at two psalms. You know, we took two weeks in a row where we, took, well, we looked at, at two uh, separate psalms and uh, so today we're jumping back into our series in First Samuel. I got to tell you, I love the book of First Samuel. Uh, it's really good. It's crazy. It's, uh, there's drama. There's excitement. There's everything. And over everything else, there is God being glorified among a foolish people. <laughs> and so um, today we're going to jump back into the story. But before uh, we do that, I figured I will give you a little bit of context so that you know where it is that we stand. You may remember back in chapter eight the people of the people of God desired they wanted a king, they asked for a king, and so God, as he often does, gives them what they wanted, even if that was you know a means of judgment actually, He gives them the king that they wanted Saul a king like the kings of other nations. Um, in the following chapter, Saul proved to be an ineffective king uh, whose main sin was the sin of self-reliance you see. Saul thought that he was a better leader for Israel than God himself. So once, you know, time and again, he did his own will as opposed to following God's will. He proved, as he did that, he proved to be unable to save the people of Israel in their time of need. And that came to the peak uh, at the time when Goliath, the giant, the champion of the Philistines, challenges the people of Israel and Saul hides behind the people and he offers riches and even one of his daughters to whoever defeats that champion a little boy a little ruddy boy that the bible calls him his name is david david of bethlehem was a little boy that was despised by his dad despised by his siblings despised by the army of israel and he was the one that stood against uh goliath and so we talked about the last time we talked about um first samuel we talked about the fact that in that chapter chapter 17 Uh, Goliath was a a type of Jesus in that he brought salvation to the people of God in their time of need. Today, that's where we pick it up. Uh, David has already conquered uh, Goliath. The people of Israel are happy and excited about David. They, They are singing songs about him. And that's where we pick up the story. Now, may I mention something? I see a few of you guys fanning yourself this morning we're having an issue with one of our uh with one of our ac units and so i do apologize bear with us some of you might be a little hot today some of you may be a little colder because we're overcompensating and so uh we do apologize for that but we're hoping to get that fixed soon with that said um that's where we are we are in first samuel chapter 17 chapter 18 i'm sorry Now, before we actually read the passage, I want to make a a quick comment. The last two weeks, like I said, we talked about the Psalms. We talked about two Psalms in particular. But if you're familiar with the book of the Psalms, you'll notice that there's 150 Psalms. It's the longest book in the entire Bible. And yet, those 150 Psalms can be summarized into one truth. The truth being that there are only two ways to live life. We have the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. If you look at Psalms 1, Psalms 2, there are a summary of all of the Psalms. And really, you can take those 150 songs and summarize them into the fact that there's only two ways for us to live life. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Today's passage actually could serve as a great illustration of this truth. In this chapter, we will see a few different characters, most of whom we already know. We will talk about Jonathan, the son of Saul. We will talk about David. We will talk about Saul. And they will introduce today a new character that she doesn't do much in this one chapter, but her name is Michael, and, he, and she is the daughter of Saul. Now, I believe that the point the author was trying to make to the original audience when he wrote this chapter was uh, the point of contrast. The way of the wise is illustrated by Jonathan and David Ili- and sorry by Jonathan and David and the way of the wicked is illustrated by Saul. With that in mind, how about we jump into the text? We will read we will start by reading the first 5 verses of chapter 18. This is the word of the Lord. It says Every time you see he here, it's talking about David. And so, just so you know, it says, As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him uh, that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And that is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that we get to draw from your word. Father, we get to sit under your word and ask you to speak to our hearts. So Father, this morning I pray that as I share from this passage, you would help us, Lord, have the sermon. I pray that if there's anything that I say that is not according uh, to the truth of the Bible, Lord, I pray that it would fall down and be forgotten. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we're so thankful for who you are and for the fact that you have spoken to us. Speak to us this morning. We speak, we ask, in the name of Jesus, I pray. So, what's going on in the story? As soon as David has defeated Goliath, a couple things happen. Um, you may remember Jonathan from a, from, from a few chapters before. Jonathan was the son of Saul. In the chapters that we've looked at so far, we have seen that Jonathan is an outstanding man. Jonathan has proven to be, time and again, a godly man. He was actually actively doing some of the things that his dad had been called to do, but was failing to do. Jonathan was a well-respected leader. He He was a good leader among the people of Israel. Not only because he was the son of the king, or because he was the, the king-in-waiting. But Jonathan was a well-respected man on his own merit as well. He had proven to be a brave warrior. He had proven to be a godly man that cared about the people of Israel. To the point that he fought for them and went after the Philistines. Once again, in this chapter, he will prove that unlike his father, he wants what is best for Israel and not just for his own personal interest and may i take a break here on father's day today dad if you're listening to me notice that for jonathan to be a godly man he had to do the uh, the the exact opposite of what his father was doing may god protect us as fathers from being an obstacle to our children when the when our children desire to follow god may they see us as an example Not of how to do it perfectly, but on how to rely on the grace of God. That was my Father's Day sermon, so you're welcome. Now, here we see Jonathan. Instead of feeling threatened by David's victory over Goliath, he actually recognizes what his dad completely misses. And that is the fact that the Lord was with David. You see, in chapter 16, you may remember, God had already anointed David as the new king in his eyes. And though he wasn't yet official, the people of Israel hadn't recognized him as king, so certainly hadn't recognized him as king. as king, it was clear that David was the anointed of the Lord. At this point, Jonathan has two options. He can pout, he can rebel, he can oppose David, because actually, David was a threat to his seat as a king. He was a direct threat to his future kingdom. So he could rebel against him, he could push back, or he could get on with God's plan and follow the king God had anointed. So what does he do? Jonathan bows to the anointed of the Lord. The author tells us that Jonathan befriends David. And by this, I don't mean that they just go out for beers. When, when the Bible tells us that, that Jonathan befriends David, he said that the, the author uses this word, his soul was knit to David's soul. This was a close, intimate friendship. You see, Jonathan, the author tells us, loved David. Now there are those who would claim that this was a kind of romantic love. There are those who, who sees some sexual undertones here between Jonathan and David? But the reality is that if you see that, you're reading the Old Testament with 2022 20, eyes. Because you see, the word or the, the language of love that he's used here to talk about David and Jonathan is used several times in this very uh, chapter. You will hear it said of the daughter of Saul, Michael. She loved David. You will hear that the people of, of Israel loved David, they, they held his name in high esteem. There's really no evidence in Scripture that this was any sort of, uh, of sexual love. It is actually sad that we live in a culture that does not understand the true love of two friends of the same sex. It's heartbreaking. The author goes as as far as to tell us that Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul, his own soul. Now let me ask you: Is that weird? No, (laughs) it's not weird. Let me tell you why. The author is telling us that he loved David as he loved his own soul. Now let me ask you: What does Scripture call us to do as the children of God? We are commanded to love God with all our heart, with our mind, and with our soul, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So is it weird that Jonathan loves David as his own soul? Absolutely not. He is showing biblical love. He is showing love to his neighbor. Actually, he could have perceived David as his enemy, and he is loving him as himself. This is the selfless love that we are called to as children of, of God. Now, how does he show this love for David. The Bible tells us that he stripped himself of his robe, of his armor, of his sword, his bow, and even his belt. This, you see, was a sign of humility. There are scholars who say that this was a symbolic way to show that he was abdicating his throne as king-in-waiting. He was saying, he was looking at David and saying, he is better than me. Now, I'm not sure this hits us the right way or the way that it would have hit the original audience. But this was a big deal. You see, Jonathan, like this was a very very unlikely situation because Jonathan was already a grown man while David was only still a kid. Not only was was Jonathan a grown man, but he was a successful, valiant man well respected by the people of Israel. And he points to David, a younger man from a poor family who has no name, who has no honor. And he says... He is greater than I. You see, Jonathan recognized that this unlikely candidate, the little boy from Bethlehem, was indeed the anointed king of Israel. When faced with the other little boy from Bethlehem, the true and better Messiah, we too have an option, you see. When we meet Jesus Christ, when we hear the gospel, when we hear about Jesus, we can, like Jonathan, bow before him and submit to his kind and gentle rule. Or we can, like Saul, despise him, as we will see in a moment. We can, like Saul, oppose him and bitterly try to hold on to our little kingdom. We, like Saul, can fall into the trap of self-belonging, deceiving ourselves into thinking that we would be better kings of our own lives, that we know better than God would. There's this episode in the office (laughs) when they're all in a boat. And towards the end, there's this one scene where you see Dwight Schrute standing behind a wooden wheel singing, what do we do with with a drunken sailor? And he is like steering this wheel that is doing nothing to the boat. It's decoration for children to take pictures with, and he thinks he's in control of that whole thing. The camera pans out, zooms into the guy that's actually steering the, the boat, and he's just shaking his head. You see, it's funny, but it's sad that this grown man has deceived himself into thinking he is the captain of that boat. Now, why am I talking about Dwight Schrute? Not only because I love the office, because I think this silly picture reflects us. We think we're the captains of our soul. We think we're in, tra- we think we're in charge of our life, and we think we're nailing it. When the reality is that if, unless Jesus Christ is the captain of your soul, and unless he is the one who's steering the direction of your life, your boat is either going to sink or run aground. Jonathan recognizes that it is better to follow God's plan, even if that puts him in the background. Now the story doesn't end there, does it? Now we will look at Saul and how he responded to the same situation, how he responded to David's success and to God's crowning of a new king. Let's go to verses 6-9. through And here I want want you to see that the wicked despised the anointed of the Lord. Verse 6 says this, it says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, being Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased them because he was petty. Just kidding, that is my version It says, he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Other translations say, and and Saul saw with suspicion David from that day on. Immediately after David defeated Goliath, you see, Saul decided not to let him go home. Saul saw his opportunity, and he seized it. He drafted David into his army. He put him in charge of the army. David became a pawn in his game. You know, it was a very convenient thing to have David at his service because Dave was, David was brave, he was an effective leader, and he had influence over the people of Israel who were singing his songs. So Saul put him in charge of the army, and he was all going pretty good. Until this comes to a screeching halt when Saul hears the women the women singing about David. They said, Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now what you got to understand is that in culturally at that time, that was a common thing to say. They said Saul first because he was the main guy. And so they weren't actually taking a dig at Saul. They were celebrating them both. And yet, in his pettiness, Saul felt insulted. Saul doesn't like this. He becomes very angry. And we will see in verse 12 that part of the reason that he was angry was because he was afraid of David. Because the, uh, because the Lord was with David. Remember back in chapter 15? In Saul's, uh, after Saul's disobedience, God had rejected Saul. Through the prophet Samuel, God had told them that he would give his kingdom to a neighbor who was better than him. And I think, at this very moment, it sounds like David realizes who that neighbor is. That neighbor is David, who is better than him. So Saul starts spiraling, and he sees God's anointed king. He sees the anointed king as a threat. And instead of bowing to him like his wise son did... So decides to take matters into his own hands. He knows his kingdom will be taken from him, so he tries to control the situation. He still wants to hold on to his little kingdom instead of lying it down at the feet of a greater and better king, Jesus, or David in this case. So what does he do? He tries to take control. And he does it by trying to murder David. As one does, right? Yeah. Uh. Now, but the reality is, this this does remind me of the words of James. In the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, says this. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You see, murder is in all of our hearts. From that day on, Saul became an enemy of David. You see, just as Jonathan and Saul, when they encounter the righteous king, when we encounter our king, Jesus, we have two, two options. We either bow before him and submit to his gentle rule or we oppose him we are either his friends or his enemies there is no neutral in the kingdom of god there is no switzerland jonathan humbly bowed before david Saul rejected david and opposed him to the point that he tried to kill him so let me ask you this morning where do you stand with christ have you bowed down before the king Jesus Christ? Have you submitted to his gentle rule or are you rebelling against him? Are you actively opposing him? Are you a friend or an enemy? Because there's no neutral. Let's keep reading. And now we're going to read a lengthy section. So I'm going to invite you to lean in as we read the Word of God. I know that if, when you're hearing somebody else read, you know, you may like get distracted. I would invite you, read it with me as I, as I read, so that you get the full picture of what's going on here. We're going to read verses uh, 10 to 30. And it says this, verse 10 says, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within the house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And this is so important. Saul, verse 13 says, So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for once again, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in, the fearful, in, in fearful awe of him. But Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Mirab; I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant uh, uh, for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him. But let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives from my father's clan in Israel, my father's clan in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirah, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased them. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him. Cold that, huh? Um, and that hand um, of the Philistines, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son in law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and said, Behold the king has the light in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son in law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul, of Saul told him, thus, um, and so did, um, sorry, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride, bride prize except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it, was, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went and, uh, along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become uh, the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. You see, what I want us to see from this passage is that the wicked plot against the anointed of the Lord. Saul, as he's trying to control the situation, decides that David needs to go. First, he tries to pin uh, David to the wall twice uh, by hurling a spear at him. When that doesn't work, he devises a plan to get rid of David in a way that actually doesn't make him look good. You may remember Saul really, really, really cared about uh, what people thought about him. And so he wants to get rid of David, but he doesn't want to look to, uh, like the bad guy. So he offers him a deal. He actually offers him his daughter, Mirab. Clearly Saul is a lousy dad that uses his daughters as currency. Remember in chapter 17, when he was looking for a champion to defeat, to defeat Goliath, he had offered his daughter as part of the reward. Do you remember that? So technically, David had already earned the right to marry his daughter. What does Saul do? He tells David, Well, if you want to be my son-in-law, I need you to fight against the Philistines. Because he was hoping that the Philistines would take care of David. That, he, that they would kill David. And well, they don't. Saul then gives his daughter, Miriam to someone else. He doesn't stick to his word. He gives her away to someone else. Now, he then hears that his other daughter, uh, Michael, was in love with David. Now, I'm going to take a stab at this and I'm going to guess that she was a teenager. How do you know, Christian? Is it because you speak Hebrew and you did deep research into this? No. But because Saul assumes that she's going to be as near to this guy, you know? And so I'm sure she was a teenager at the time. I'm kidding. If you're a teenager, we love you and we're so thankful. I'm completely kidding. Um, <laughs> in all seriousness, though, David decides to give her uh, I mean Saul decides to give his daughter to David. But as he was coming at the time there was a bride price that he had to pay. So, what does he do? He tells David, well, "Actually, let's make a deal. You know, David is poor. So instead of asking for money, he asked for a bouquet of Philistine foreskins. <laughs> now, <laughs> have you ever wondered why someone would ask for such a gross, bride price. You see, back in those days, it wasn't unheard, unheard of to ask for someone's head or another body part. It was meant to be a sign of conquest. The reason he specifically requested the foreskins is because the, that was something that David could not fake by killing, say, his own uh, Israelites. Because, as you may know, they had already been circumcised. Saul is really banking on the Philistines getting rid of David. Saul's hope is then that they would kill him and that his, uh, his name would still be intact. Again, David is not shaken by this. And one day he decides to go and do exactly what Saul asked him to do. But because he knows that Saul is a little sneaky, he comes back not with 100 foreskins but with 200 foreskins. So that Saul would have no excuse to give him his daughter in marriage. Now, this story is a whole thing, okay? This story is, there's drama, there's action. It could seriously be a Latin soap opera, right? Um, but, let me ask you, what is the point of the story? Was this, was this story written to entertain us? No. Why then do we have this chapter in the Word of God? What in the world is the point of this story? What is the intent of the author when he tells us this story? Which, by the way, is a question that we should ask ourselves. Are we reading, as we're reading Scripture, let us make sure that we try to understand what the Bible is actually trying to tell us, what the author had in mind when he wrote these words. Because if not, we will come up with our own conclusions that may be very different than what the author had in mind. I believe there are two things that the author, that the author wanted to show us. Number one. It shows us that the Lord was with with David and that the Lord had already rejected Saul. And I think the author is trying to make that a point. The Lord was was with David. The question is, why was he with David? Was it because David was a good guy and Saul was a shady guy? No. You know, David, as we will see as we continue studying the the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, we will see that David commits some serious sin. He commits adultery, murder. He literally breaks every commandment. So was God with David because he was a good guy? No. Did God reject Saul because he was too sinful for him? Absolutely not. I would say, if we, weigh, if we were to, to, to measure and to weigh the sinfulness of David and Saul as described by Scripture... I think we might say, well, it sounds like David was the worst guy here. Why then was God with David and not with Saul? I would say it's because David's heart was different than Saul's. David's heart was one, as the Bible says, after God's own heart. You see, God does not love you because of the things that you do for him. He loves you because he is God and because he is love. Saul, on the other hand, was a man that gave the appearance of righteousness, but ultimately didn't really care about God. He only cared about himself. Saul's self-centeredness led him to use others for his own benefit. You see, when you live for yourself, those around you become tools or means to an end. In this, Saul was actually an antichrist, if you will, in that he was so self-centered while Christ is selfless. Saul didn't mind laying down the life of others for his gain while Christ, on the other hand, selflessly laid down his life for our gain. The second thing I think the author had in mind when he was writing this is to show us how Saul in his evil plotting becomes an agent of God's sovereignty. What do I mean by that? You see, there are times when God uses the wicked to bring about his purposes. He did so with Joseph. He did so with Job. He did so with Daniel and with his three friends. And, he, and it's actually a pretty common thread throughout scripture that God would use the wicked to bring about his good purposes. You see, Saul is trying to murder David. He does so three times in this one chapter, and he repeatedly fails. And what was the effect of this? Verse 30 tells us that it caused David's name to be highly esteemed among the people. You see, God had anointed David as the rightful king of Israel. And nothing could stop that, no matter how hard Saul tried. You see, the author repeatedly tells us that the Lord was with David. So every plan of Saul fell through. Every attempt for David's life was foiled. Why? because the Lord was with David. The question is, is this always the case that those who follow the Lord will not be hurt? Is this the case that those who follow the Lord will always be successful in everything that they do and the plans of their enemies will always be foiled? No. Let me ask you this morning, was that the case with Jesus, that his enemies weren't able to hurt him? No. In his Pentecost sermon, Peter said this. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, here Peter is telling the people uh, in in his Pentecost sermon, he's telling them, God had a plan and you killed Jesus In that he's saying, you were agents of God's sovereignty to bring about his purposes. As as Joseph told his brothers, what you meant for evil, the Lord used for his good. The word of God tells us that God uses the wicked to bring about his purposes. In the case of Jesus, the Jews crucified him. They killed Jesus. And they did so out of their own free will, out of their own sinfulness and wickedness. They planned, they plotted, and they crucified Jesus. Now, we know what happens at the end of the story. But even in their wickedness, God used the enemies to bring about his purposes. You see, we know that Jesus' enemies were able to hurt him and even murder him. But what doesn't change is the fact that God used the plot of the wicked to bring about his purposes. In this case, in the case of David, I'm sorry, Saul wasn't able to hurt him. But is that always the case? Once again, let me ask you, is this your experience actually? Probably not. You see, the beauty of the Bible is that it doesn't pretend that suffering doesn't exist. The beauty of the Bible is that it doesn't act as if there are in those who are against you. The Bible actually stares suffering in the eye and tells us, you are not alone. This is not beyond God's control. Last week, we talked about the fact that God is always with us. David himself reminded us in Psalm 139 that as children of God, we cannot escape God's intimate presence. God is with us. Even in the midst of our suffering, God is with us. He knows us and knows where we are. And yet many of us have been hurt. For many of us when our enemy hurls a spear at us, we won't be able to evade it. And we will be hurt. Maybe we will be hurt by sickness. Maybe we have been hurt by depression. Maybe it's been betrayal. Some of us us will be hurt. Some of us are hurting today. But the truth remains the same. God's purposes will not be thwarted in the life of his children. God remains good. God remains faithful. And he is near us even in the midst of our suffering. Do you know who didn't evade the spears hurled at him? As I said a moment ago, Jesus. He was brutally murdered at the cross. God used the wicked plans of the Jews to bring about his purposes. What they meant for evil, God used for his glory. And he brought the most beautiful thing through it, which is our salvation. I don't know what you're going through today. But I do know that you have an enemy. But I also know that your enemy is a dog on a leash. Our enemies are unable to touch us. Even one of our hairs cannot be touched by our enemies unless God, God allows it. You see, one of the comforts that come from the gospel is that even when we are suffering, we can say, like Justin Martyr said to Marcus Aurelius in his letter, He said, You can kill us, but you can't hurt us. As believers, even when we are suffering, we rest on the fact that we know that even if we were to die, we are safe in the hands of our benevolent God. Because for us to die is to live as Christ, and to die is gain. Church, before I close, I wanted to point something out. And I want to be clear. These are two applications that I'm about to say that were not the original intent of the author. Okay? And I want to be clear about that. When the author wrote this passage, the things I'm about to say were probably not in his mind. But in light of the cross, there are things that we can see here that are of comfort to us as children. Number one, our king invites us to be part of his family. One of the wicked things that Saul did to David was to pretend that he wanted David to be part of his family. He does this a few times actually by offering him a couple of his daughters. He actually tells his servants to go tell, go tell David that the king delights in him. Three times did David try to prove that he deserved being part of his family, of the king's family. And every time he tried, or two times he tried, he fell short. Only the third time when he got the double amount of foreskins where he was he allowed to join David, I mean Saul's family. Saul was toying with David. Church, God wants you to be part of his family. And he's not toying with you. And neither is he asking you to earn it. Saul asked David for a high price, hoping he would fail. God wants you to be part of his family, and he's asking you for nothing. As a matter of fact, he's such a good and benevolent God that he sent his only son to pay for the price so that you will be part of his family. Church, this is our friend, our brother, Jesus. Remember at the beginning, when we saw Jonathan take off his kingly clothes in order to give those to David. These specific verses are often used to describe friendship, and I think that's great. I think we can learn about this, or we can learn from this passage about friendship. And we should all aim to be this kind of friend, and to have this kind of friends. But I want to remind us that we have a true and better friend, and his name is Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left his throne at the right hand of the Father. He got rid of his kingly clothes to come and to save us. Church, like the old song says, what a friend we have in Jesus, who, like Jonathan, left his kingly clothes and made a covenant with us. One that we did not deserve. Paul says this in Philippians 2.5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, what a friend we have in Jesus that not only stripped himself from his kingly clothes, but at the cross, he actually clothed us with his kingly clothes of righteousness. He actually took our filthy clothes of our death and our sin, and he gave us his kingly clothes of righteousness. So that we would be welcomed into the family of God. God delights in us. Not because of what we can achieve for Him. We are not pawns in His plans. God delights in us because He is love. God delights in us because at the cross, Jesus gave His life for us. And when God the Father sees us, instead of seeing our brokenness, instead of seeing our sin, instead of seeing our awful choices and the times that we have betrayed Him time and again, for those who are in Christ, He sees us as perfect. wearing the kingly clothes of righteousness that belong to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me close this morning by asking you, do you believe that? Do you believe that if you are in in Christ, if you have placed your trust in him, Christ has clothed you with his perfection. Stop trying to earn God's love. You can't. But you don't have to because it's already been given for you. You do not have to earn your way into the family of God. If you are not yet part of that family, If you do not yet follow Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, would you consider doing that today? Are you like David, a man or a woman after God's own heart? Are you a friend of Jesus, or are you like Saul, his enemy? The good news is that we were all his enemies. Ephesians tells us we were all the objects of his wrath. But because of his great love with which he loved us, he sent his only son, that we would become his sons and daughters. Would you join us in worship as we respond to the Lord?